องพี่บอกเลยพร้อมจะมาลุ้นครับAs a young girl, spring was my favorite season. The excitement of the Tianjin Water Festival, evening prayers at the temple, and the beautiful yellow of the Badal flowers stirred into bloom. Not one single flower, but a group of buds joined together. They bloom, filling the air with the fresh. Woody perfume that smells like hope. This protest changed me a lot. I feel like I became a Dao. I can think really openly and freely. I was scared, but I went along with my friends to fin in the street, joined the growing crowds. The first time ever raising my voice against the military. The project teach me a lot about justice. And opened my eyes. I have met so many、um, human rights activists and young leaders. They teach me a lot, and they share knowledge and observation, and the truth about Myanmar, and the truth about people. Hi there, and thanks for listening. If you're enjoying our podcast and have a recommendation about someone you think we should have on to share their voice and journey with the world, by all means, let us know. It could be an aid worker, monastic, author, journalist, scholar, resistance leader—really anyone with some tie or another to the ongoing situation in Myanmar. To offer up a name, go to our website insightmyanmar.org and let us know. But for now, just sit back and take a listen to today's episode. We're happy to bring you the following interview with a guest who's connected to an exciting upcoming event. The Burma Spring Benefit Film Festival. It will run from February 1st to the 13th and feature a wide range of films, documentaries, shorts, animations, and panel discussions. Nowhere else can one find so many diverse forms of media connected to Myanmar that are ready to be streamed in the privacy of one's home. 
while there's no charge to log in and watch these features to your heart's content. The film organizers kindly request that viewers consider contributing a donation of any amount. All the proceeds will be going towards humanitarian missions in Myanmar. In their own words, the events organizers write, These provide humanitarian assistance in Chin, Kachin, Karen, Kareni, and Shan states, poor ethnic areas most severely impacted by food insecurity and emergency shelter needs. Support will also go to freelance media and nonviolent human rights activists forced into Thailand. Know that your contributions will make a difference in Myanmar through enabling dedicated local organizations to courageously carry on grassroots work in a time of darkness. So, if you're encouraged by what you hear from today's guest, we encourage you to take advantage of this special opportunity and take in a variety of film festival events. You can search for Burma Spring Benefit Film Festival to learn more, or follow the links on our website. For now, let's get into today's interview. Our movement grew stronger, three fingers held high. The civil disobedience movement was growing. Everyone joined in. Grammars banged the port. The whole country came together in protest. Everyone feels this time we can change history. And that was a clip that we just listened to from the documentarian, Jean Hallisey, who is here with us today. This is from her film, Padauk, uh, which I encourage all our listeners to check out. It's really quite a feature, and we're going to be talking about this film as well as her other advocacy and activism. So, Jean, thank you so much for taking the chance to join us here on Insight Myanmar podcast. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, I want to begin first by talking about this film because I was just really blown away by it myself. Uh, to start off, can you just tell us, as far as it's safe, given the dangers that were on the ground through this process, how was your team managed to do the technical work of actually filming? All of our films are made with collaboration um, with a team that we have on the ground in Myanmar. So there's a, we are a small nonprofit called Kirana Productions based in San Francisco, California, but our productions are all done in collaboration with Myanmar camera persons and field producers. So um, in addition, one of our, our, our team members, Rarish Gilazan, who's the co-director of the film, happened to still be in Yangon where he was living uh, at the time. And so we quickly got in touch with him and set up a secure portal over signal through which we could direct him on a daily basis, his time, but our biggest concern, of course, was for our Myanmar team because the repercussions for them would be greater than they would be for Raris. So what we did is we had a routine time where we would meet daily for our direction um, meetings to be able to assess, first of all, the security on the ground for all of them, and then to understand what was going on in terms of the main characters that we followed and what the possibilities would be for the sequences to continue to build the story. So it was um, it was quite interesting for me because uh, it was the first time ever that I actually directed something remotely without being on the ground. But the camera work was done by Raj Gilzan and our very courageous uh, Burmese colleague, our cameraman, Sai Jokai. Mm, right, yeah, that's, that's great to hear. And 
One of the things that I found quite interesting and unique about the documentary was that you follow the narratives and the lives in these particular months of several Burmese activists that you choose. And what stood out to me was up to this point, I had just been hearing more about this protest over here or this crackdown over there or this event that that happened or was about to happen. And this was the first time that I was really able to follow the actual stories of the people where the context was in the background. Usually it's the other way around. I found living vicariously and learning about the protest movement from afar is that I'm learning about the the events first, and then I might learn something about who was there or what happened, but they're just snapshots. Whereas you're putting that in the center. You're putting the lives and experiences, feelings, emotions, motivations of several protagonists, and you're having them narrate their experience and also having video footage of what they're actually doing while they're there, uh, which to me was very compelling and very um, very informative uh, to be able to follow people people's lives through these events rather than just the focus on the events themselves. So can you share a bit about what led you to the creative decision to focus on the story of these protagonists and how you settled on which protagonists to follow? All of our productions uh, use this framework of what we call in-depth personal storytelling. So it's always complex to present to a viewer, particularly somebody who's not aware of Myanmar or even perhaps Southeast Asia, uh, what the situation is on the ground. And we find that the most effective way to convey that is to really go in-depth inside the hearts of people who, as you pointed out, are living through these experiences and hopefully through their eyes develop uh, a compassion that the audience will be able to empathize and understand on a human level what this actually means for lives on the ground. Uh, For the characters that we developed, um, this evolved during our production meetings. Mong Sokha was somebody who I knew, uh, he is one of the three characters portrayed He is an award-winning poet, as well as an activist in Myanmar, and and was a former political prisoner. He was actually um, detained for his activism to promote the um, right to free speech and digital media freedoms that were curtailed under the National League for Democracy government period during the transition, and as well as the internet blackouts that were experienced intermittently in places like Western Rakhine State, which is where the Rohingya were living. And he had long been an activist during the so-called transition years, and in those years actually was a lone wolf. In many ways was portrayed by some of the other countrymen as kind of reigning on the parade, if you like, of this newfound democratic transition. But in fact, what he was pointing out was that the transition was superfluous and the pre-existing conditions of the historical roots of the conflict, which of course have come to the fore now, still had to be addressed, namely the inequities of the ethnic uh, ethnic nationalities, um, including the Rohingya, the Kachin, the Shan, the Karen, 
and the fact that military abuses were continuing in these areas, moreover, that there were still people being detained for their activism. And of course, needless to say, that the crimes against humanity that were so well documented in against the Rohingya in Rakhine State were grounds for people to be awakened to realize that there was still much to be done. So he was someone who was known to me um, before the making of this film, and I had a lot of regard for him. And when he came to the fore as one of the leaders, it, it was um, an organic choice to follow him both for his activism, but also he has a very pure passion that comes through his poetry. And I felt that that would really give people a sense of the, the, the urgency and the creative prism through which many of the activists carry out their work. The other two protagonists that we focused on um, came about during the coverage of the protests themselves. So Zaw was the uh, one of the leaders of the drum revolution, and he uh, was somebody that really captured our imagination when we saw him leading these um, these ad hoc concerts, <laughs> um, kind of a mixture of Burmese hip hop and rap and um, fusion music uh, using drums as the background. And he just was this really vibrant, incredibly energetic character that really caught our eye. And so I asked um, our team on the ground to seek him out and ask his consultation to participate in the film, which he then became one of the really compelling characters. Um, and we still stay in touch with him now. And then the third character emerged um, during our team's coverage of one of the main intersections in Yangon, which was the, Yangon is the major urban center of Myanmar, was formerly the capital before the Myanmar military moved the national capital to Naypyidaw, but Yangon remains the largest urban center in the country. And one of the large neighborhood intersections there is called Hleidan. This intersection has a political branding history as well because of its proximity to the University of Rangoon, which is one of the, the big universities there that has always been um, a, 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 a hotbed of activism throughout Myanmar's history. And that intersection has been known over the many decades of resistance to be a flashpoint where people gather to protest. And so the third character is a woman. She is an ethnic Shan. Her name is Yin Yang. And she was really interesting to us. And can you tell us a bit about what has happened to these protagonists you follow since filming, if you know where they've ended up? The three protagonists that we followed for Padauk um, have uh, remained in contact with us. Um, the primary point of contact is Nan. Nan is the young woman through whose eyes we tell the story of Padau. And she is in routine contact um, with uh, Zaw and Mong Sokha. However, of late, she has lost contact with Yin Ying, the, the woman, the Shan ethnic Shan woman activist. We understood that she had... Um, certainly received warnings of her imminent arrest and went to ground to find a secure safe house where she could be in hiding to avoid arrest. I believe that she's probably back in Shan State, but she has um, lost the point of contact with us and we do hope that she remains safe. The other two protagonists, Mong Sukha, the poet and activist, and Zaw, 
who led the drum revolution, a former teacher who was one of the leading activists among the youth of Gen Z that were out in the streets, have both joined the armed resistance. Uh, Following the military coup and its brutal crackdown that led to the killing of over 12, 1,300 people on the streets, as well as the arrest of over 8,000 people, there was a mounting sense of frustration and desperation, is what I would describe it, among the activists in Myanmar to the non-responsiveness of the international community in understanding the urgency of their situation and the need for stronger policy measures by both the United Nations as well as uh, leading democratic governments such as the United States or the EU as an entity. And this led to um, the government in exile, which is called the National Unity Government, or NUG by its acronym, to take a decision to create an armed wing of their political movement. Um, The NUG is comprised of elected parliamentarians who would have taken their seats had the election results been honored, which they were not. And it was those election results that uh, the the um, annihilation of those results that led to the military seizing power in February of 2021. And they formed uh, this government and they also appointed various ministers, including ethnic leaders, to positions in the portfolio of that government. And they are looking for recognition uh, from the international community to see them as the legal government entity of Myanmar. When the efforts toward that end were continuing to be slow and the violence was continuing on the ground, there was a decision taken by the NUG, the National Unity Government, to to announce that they would, uh, moving forward, have an armed resistance. That was the People's Defense Force, or PDF. And the PDF is um, an organization that came out of the February coup uh, response, and they have now fled to primarily borderland areas. So Myanmar has a very long border that it's shared with Thailand that's over 1,500 kilometers long. It also shares a northern border with China. It shares a western border with both Bangladesh and India. And these PDF forces, mostly made up of young people like Mong Saka, like Zaw, young people who grew up in the cities and have never lived in the jungle or perhaps never even visited an ethnic area in the jungle where the ethnic armies have been based for 70 years, fighting what they would call a defensive war against the Myanmar military in an armed resistance. And they have gone to these areas controlled by the ethnic armies for military training. Uh, The military training includes um, tactical warfare, it includes um, survival tactics in the jungle, and it has also included um, strategies regarding how to look at uh, bringing the conflict to urban areas in an urban guerrilla warfare style that has been um, heretofore unprecedented in Myanmar. So both both Zaw and Mongsoka have decided to take up arms um, against the military as their only recourse 
for trying to fight for democracy for their country. Mm, thank you for that. And I think another thing that really struck me when I was watching it that struck me through my tears and trying to get through it, and I should mention that uh, my sound engineer also has a copy of it, and he's has relayed to me he's working through his tears as well as working through the pieces because it just so vividly brings to life the feeling and the the vibe and the, uh, the the actuality of what it's like to be on those streets and and the feeling of it is is so powerful and, and vivid in the way it comes through. I think for me, when you're tracing these personalities as protagonists, it's uh, these are kind of every man, every woman. To put it another way, they appeared to me almost as Burmese archetypes in the sense that when these characters came out, even though I had never heard of them or known anything about them, I immediately had this sense of like, oh, this is like so-and-so. Oh, she's like, you know, whoever. And they they really uh, reminded me fully fleshed out of these figures that I know very well in my life that have been my friends and I've watched their trajectories through this. And there's this, this copy, this brother or sister of them on the screen acting and speaking in very similar ways. So it was very heartfelt to see that that uh, portrayed. And, and I think what it's also, what you're also attempting to do in the film, as well as in how you described it here, is to try to alert the, the, the Western world, the, the world outside of Myanmar, that these are ordinary people. These are people coming from extremely normal and usual backgrounds that have been thrown into something the likes of which none of us can really imagine how they got there. And I think that's been one of the hardest things to portray to the outside world about this conflict is how sudden it's been for part of the population, obviously not for the the the, the total number of inhabitants in the country because the ethnics have been waging this defensive war for so many years, but for especially the urban, the Bamar, this is something they've been thrown into after a, a much more conventional, normal life. And to try to convey what that jump and transition has been is exceedingly difficult. And through the trajectory you show of them, they're, they're leading up into the point where they make that fateful decision of what they're really going to do to in invest themselves in trying to win the country's freedom. And with that, let's just take one more moment and hear another clip from the film uh, that, uh, that also speaks to some of this transition that the characters are going through. The project teaches me a lot about jealousy and opened my eyes. I have met so many um, human rights activists and young leaders. They teach me a lot and they share knowledge and observation. And the truth about Myanmar and the truth about people in the world. So that was another clip from the documentary Padauk. And you reference how a couple of these protagonists in the film have since gone on to join the armed resistance. This is not shown in the film because the film ends before this decision was made. This question about the armed resistance is something that's quite controversial and perhaps even a little misunderstood uh, in foreign circles that uh, have expressed concerns about seeing this armed resistance as perhaps contributing to a greater instability or civil war or violence. And yet in the country, this is seen as something of a last stand to be able to eradicate this, this evil 
of what military rule has done for so many years. Uh, as someone like yourself who has been so involved in Myanmar for so many decades and following the tales of these particular uh, youths that you detail in the documentary, what are your thoughts on the rise of the armed resistance and the PDF groups? I am somebody who um, very much supports nonviolence, and um, it is an ethos, uh, the centerpiece of our work at Karana Productions. Um, we try to share these stories to promote a sense of humanity and compassion and understanding about the common grounds that we share as human beings. Um, and I don't embrace nonviolence or uh, embrace violence or see it as um, as a solution. Having said that, I am not in any position to um, pass a judgment upon those who have seen this as no other choice, and that's simply what it has come down to. So imagine for your listeners, if in the United States we held congressional elections as well as a presidential election at the same time. And the results of those elections were announced. And just before the Congress people and the president were sworn into their offices, the United States Armed Forces would announce, well, guess what, people of the United States, we're not going to allow these people to take their seats in Congress or take their seat in the Oval Office as the president. It would be an astonishing and unacceptable situation. And then imagine that Americans who thought this was unacceptable went out in the streets to say, we're, we're not going to tolerate this, and in, went out in the streets in nonviolent protest manner, and then were killed. Were killed, were gunned down, were hunted. Those that were detained were tortured. And this is what has led to the situation that we are seeing now. And it is something that is extremely heartbreaking for me as a, as a longtime Burma observer, somebody who has been honored to, to know many people um, in this remarkable country. And the reason that I think many people like myself are drawn to Burma, the, the formerly, formerly called country of Burma, changed its name to Myanmar. It's showing my, it's dating me to show my age of how long I've been working there, is that the people are so extraordinary. They are people that to me have always shown this really remarkable resilience and determination to continue to do whatever it takes to make change, to have a peaceful and secure country that is based on democratic principles, no matter what the risk or what the cost, which has been extremely high. Not just now during the military coup, for decades it has been high. The long-standing conflict, armed conflict between the Myanmar military and its different assignations as it changes its name over the decades and the ethnic nationalities is one of the longest running civil wars in the world. This is a place that has been in conflict for 70 years since the post-World War II period. This is a place where people have been imprisoned for you know, 12, 17, 21 years for non-violent resistance to military rule. This is a place where people have been tortured in the most brutal fashion, all well-documented by organizations like the Assistance Association for Political Prisoners. So in this case, this is a country that has seen this level of suffering 
this level of being put down on the boots of these military for this long and finally had this window of light through this political transition period that took place from 2015 when the National League for Democracy or NLD leader Aung San Suu Kyi was released from her 15 years of house arrest, was allowed to run in the country with her party. They won an overwhelming landslide, not to the surprise of Burma watchers. And th therein began what was called the transition period, during which time some things lightened up. So previously in Myanmar, to buy a mobile phone was about $2,000. To buy a SIM card was close to $1,000. There was no Wi-Fi. There was no internet. Um, there was a um, an activist that I knew. In fact, he was uh, someone very close to to Da Su, um, and she called him Uncle Leo. This was back in in the mid '90s when she was under house arrest, and she saw him as something of a godfather, if you like. And um, he actually supplied her with a fax machine. This was back in the mid '90s, in order for her to receive communications from the United States government and the European Union and, and other, other organizations during her house arrest, for delivering that fax machine, he was imprisoned. And Uncle Leo was an elderly person at the time of his detention, and he died in prison. But this is to give you the sense of what it was like prior to this transition. It was a completely closed off, controlled country under absolute military rule. The only other country that I would liken it to with that level of control would be North Korea. So then suddenly the press loosens up. There's a sense of press freedom, right? Um, the exiled media that had been reporting so um, bravely on their country from outside the country, such as in places such as in Thailand or in Norway, including the democratic voice of Burma, the Irrawaddy, what we now know as, as, as quite well-known media entities, returned back to operate legally in their country. And then more media opened up. Myanmar, you know, Myanmar Now and Frontier and all these magazines and as well as radio stations that were able to operate throughout the ethnic areas that would never have been permitted prior to the transition. So the Gen Zs who were in their 20s, you know, basically grew up from their teens with this idea that they can go on Facebook, they can tweet, they can go to a nice shopping mall and meet their friends for a coffee, they can have their lives, you know, things were looking up. Investment was coming in the country, um, it was a hard, a hard road ahead, it was a bumpy road, but there was some momentum of a progress toward democratization with Aung San Suu Kyi's party um, in the parliament and her role um, as the state councillor. But that was short-lived. And what we now see is the complete decimation of any form of progress that was made during that transition to go back to the Stone Age of military control. And that is why people are now saying this has to be the last revolution. This has to be the last time that we tell this military we do not want them to govern us. Go back to your barracks and operate as a military as in any other democratic country for the sole purpose of the defense of the nation, but not to govern us. And this is it. This is the last time that the people are coming out to say we've had enough. We want freedom. 
and they will do whatever it takes at this point. They will sacrifice whatever is required. Blackouts, lack of electricity, lack of food, poverty, detention, fleeing to borderland areas, taking up arms. They will do whatever it takes if they think this time change will come. You reference your number of years in the country as an advocate and an ally. You've seen history take place before you many years before this. How do you find this time different than what you've experienced before? There's an unprecedented political awakening across Myanmar about awareness of the ethnic nationalities and their longstanding plight the in, the marginalization of the ethnic nationality of the ethnic nationalities the the dire poverty that they have been subjected to the lack of development but also the severe human rights abuses they have continued to endure even during this political transition period so it's important for people to understand that even whilst this new age of transition was taking place there was still conflict in ethnic areas such as Kachin State. There were still people being displaced, what we call IDPs, internally displaced persons. That means they are refugees in their own land. They have not fled across a border, but they are displaced from fighting in their own state. There are tens of thousands of IDPs that were living in Kachin State. There were, there were IDPs in Karen State. There were IDPs in Shan State. So, Whilst it was true that there were some improvements happening, that was not the case for the ethnic nationalities. Separately, and equally, if not more importantly, was the issue of the Rohingya. We have seen the largest refugee camp in the world, over one million people displaced from what was certainly crimes against humanity and is now being described by many experts as a, a campaign of genocide to eliminate the Rohingya from the most heinous, unimaginable crimes that took place across their communities that led to the purge of one million people fleeing to neighboring Bangladesh to conditions of squalor where they now remain. And following that campaign of violence, the military manipulated social media and manipulated their propaganda tools that were very sharpened from years of control to embed in the minds of non-ethnic people, non-Rohingya people, so the majority race Bama, to think that the Rohingya were exaggerating the situation, that they were illegal Bengalis, that they, were, they had no claim to even say that they were part of Myanmar. And this led to a very vicious and very disgraceful and volatile hate campaign against the Rohingya that many young people, including Gen Z, who are now against the military and took part in the protests, participated in. So that was part of the key message of our film, Padauk, was to show through the eyes of this young woman, Nan, who is an every woman, She's a young woman who grew up in the city, who basically thought the ethnic nationalities were troublemakers, right? They were, you know, perhaps terrorists. They were people that were trying to rock the boat and disrupt the, the newfound democracy that the rest of the country was enjoying, who believed that the Rohingya were illegal and probably had racist sentiments against them. And these, 
this this very successful campaign of vitriol and hate speech against the Rohingya was fueled by Facebook. So much so that Facebook has actually been taken to task for its culpability in the violence that resulted from the use of its portal to target the Rohingya. So now we're at a point where people like Nant, the storyteller of our film, has her eyes wide open and is saying, oh my gosh, my heart is so full, my heart is brimming over because I realize that I was wrong, that I was duped, that I was hypnotized by the hate-filled propaganda of this military to see my sisters and brothers in the Rohingya community, in the Kachin, the Shan, the Chin, the Mon, the Karen communities, the Kareni communities, these are my sisters and brothers. And that is what is different now. For the first time ever, I see a much heightened awareness among the urban sectors of young people, and not just young people, middle-aged people, civil servants, right? And among the Bama. So Burma is comprised of over 135 different ethnic nationalities, of which there are 15 major ethnic nationalities. And one of the ethnic nationalities are the Bama, who we call Burmans, Burmese, and they have been awakened. And they are now willing to take the hands of their ethnic sisters and brothers, of their Rohingya sisters and brothers, and say, we are one, we are united, we are together and we will end this military rule together. That's what's different. Mm. So you've been not only visiting and advocating for Myanmar for so many years and decades, but you've also formed your own media company and you uh, tell stories about, uh, from different angles, different perspectives, uh, other documentaries that you've made to get the message out uh, about different parts of Burmese society and history and culture, et cetera. So as you've seen this coup in the last year develop and you've seen how international media is reporting on it and more significantly not reporting on it, from your perspective as someone who spent so much time in the country as an advocate and as someone so involved in media yourself, what would you say are some of the most uh, serious things that international media is missing or not understanding or misinterpreting from their coverage of the post-coup in the last year? Well, I'd like to first um, respond to that, Joa, by I was a former journalist for many years, and um, I'm actually on a listserv that is um, cultivated by a very long-time Burma expert who, who creates a, a media listserv. She calls uh, media worldwide daily and sends us the best of the stories. And every day in my inbox, there are at least 30 stories by international media about Myanmar. So I, I actually don't agree that it's not being covered. It is being covered. The wire agencies are covering it. Reuters and um, Associated Press and Agence France Press are certainly covering it, as well as um, other media, the Washington Post, the New York Times, you know, for organizations that your listeners would, rec would, would um, uh, recognize. Um, there will be a piece coming out shortly on PBS NewsHour, for example, which has also had some very good reports on the situation there. And whilst it's true that there are many different crises in the world that uh, dictate the news cycle and Myanmar is no longer at the top of that news cycle, there is certainly reporting going on, notwithstanding the incredible, incredible reporting that is going on by Myanmar media who remain inside the country or at the borderland areas, providing really crucial information to the outside world. 
but it is no longer a, a headline lead story. That's true. The situation now has devolved to what I would describe as a full-blown humanitarian crisis. We are now looking at over 300,000 internally displaced persons who are fleeing from the continuing violence and conflict throughout Myanmar. Most of those people are extremely vulnerable villagers, um, women, children, the elderly, people who are sick and ailing are running for their lives from their villages, their towns, and now even cities to the borderland areas to escape the military attacks across the country. We are also now seeing for the first time the deployment of heavy airstrikes by the Myanmar military. One analyst recently told me that was partly due to the fact that because the People's Defense Force, the PDF, is carrying out attacks themselves against the military in so many parts of the country that the Myanmar military troops are stretched thin on the ground. So the traditional ground troops that would be responding to conflict in those areas are, are no longer able to cover all of the areas where the conflict is happening. So they are using airstrikes. So just last week, another hospital was hit by an airstrike in Karen State. This completely contravenes international law contravenes the Geneva Convention, but this is the level of brutality that is being faced by people, both the ethnics on the borderland areas, as well as all of those young people, middle-aged people, uh, doctors, professionals, um, activists who have joined the ethnic people in the borderland areas. So it is a crisis of disproportionate scale that I haven't seen before, and it has devolved into a civil war scenario. Um, I think it is extremely um, urgent to develop a established humanitarian corridor to deliver urgently needed humanitarian assistance to these displaced persons who are living along the border in very difficult circumstances. That would include the delivery of um, humanitarian aid that would be not just food, but also medicines that are needed. So it is, um, it is quite a serious crisis right now. I've never seen it this, this bad. In referencing the media, you credit some of the local media agencies and undercover reporters for what they've done to get the story out. Can you share a bit more what you know about that work happening behind the scenes? In addition to the well-known Burmese media that I've mentioned previously, there are a host of, um, of ethnic media organizations um, so again, for your listeners, as I, as I referenced, there are different ethnic nationalities and each of those ethnic nationalities have their own language and their own cultural um, history. So they report in their ethnic language. So for example, most recently, um, I was able to visit um, along the Thailand-Myanmar border, um, right at the border area, I was able to visit one of the ethnic media organizations that is known as K-Thai. It's Kantarawadi Thai. They are from the eastern Kareni or Kaya state, which has been most severely impacted by this ongoing conflict. Um, Kaya state now has one-third of their entire population has been displaced from the fighting and the airstrikes in their capital city, known as Loikaw, have been very severe. Loikaw has now had major infrastructure damage from the continuing airstrikes. And just days ago, 
um, an additional airstrike sent over 50,000 people fleeing towards the Thailand-Myanmar border. And one of their uh, media entities, KTAI, which was something that started during the political transition, um, had to flee because of their security. Their offices were raided. Um, they told, they described to me how soldiers came <clears throat> to their offices, seized all of the computers, ripped things out of the wall, smashed equipment in front of them, and told them they were no longer able to report. And following that, the people that were in their editorial offices that witnessed that alerted their colleagues, and many of them ran. And they are now operating on Thai soil at the border area in a very, very simple structure, but continuing to report about the war in their state. And this is an example of the kind of really remarkable and courageous reporting that I'm seeing done. They have colleagues who remain inside Kaya State at tremendous risk and are using various uh, communication modes to be able to get the information from the ground out to their colleagues who are now on the border in order to inform um, not just their own population, but the international community about the severity of, of the conflict. Um, they also have a radio station set up, very simple, but very effective in this makeshift editorial office, if you'd like to call it. It's, I would put office in quotes, but they managed to um, create a makeshift uh, studio and have uh, broadcast equipment where they can also do radio programming on a daily basis. And this is one of the many different organizations that are doing really important um, work to, to cover the story in their country. Mm, thanks for that. So you reference all the great local work that's going on and the great risk and sacrifice being done to that, as well as where it's being covered internationally and the listserv that you're on that you're able to stay up to date with. As, as someone who has been involved in Myanmar for so long on the ground among many different groups, in reading the way that it's covered internationally, do you find that it's fairly accurate and, and are capturing the nuance and the details? Or are you finding that there are parts of the conflict and, and what's going on that are not quite being understood or reported quite the way you see it or according to locals or local news agencies that you talk to? I, I think overall it's being reported very well. Um, within the framework of what is possible. So I think it, it's important to distinguish between national Myanmar media and foreign media. The national Myanmar media, I think, are continuing to do an outstanding job, again, at great risk, to report about the situation, as well as share information to foreign media, which or, or repurpose that information for foreign media. For the foreign media, you, you must understand um, that there is a, a cadre of foreign correspondents here in Thailand, um, in Bangkok, where I'm based, that have been covering Myanmar for quite a long time. There are several really outstanding foreign correspondents who have a wealth of experience in covering the country for, for a protracted period and a real understanding of the, of the complexity um, of the current situation. But clearly, they cannot go to Myanmar now to report. Um, so they are only able to report from the long Thailand-Myanmar border that I talked about earlier. And even there, it is constricted because of the Thai policy regarding access to these internally displaced persons that have fled. They are not giving access to the media to visit those areas. 
So it is uh, in a constricted environment that they are doing their level best to report, but they are making an effort to do that. Al Jazeera, BBC, ITN Channel 4, for example, among others, as well as the wire agencies that I talked about, they, they are all continuing to report. And I know that many of them are working on longer format packages that will um, go to air or to print um, at the marking commemorating the one year anniversary of the coup, which is coming up on February 1st. Um, so within the, the confines of what is possible, they are doing a good job. Mm, right. You referenced being in Thailand and partly the Thai government's response. Overall, looking at the course of the past year, how would you characterize what the Thai government or Thai organizations are doing to support the people, vulnerable groups that are being most impacted? Currently, Thailand is also under a military government. And um, they have also seen a rise of protests in the last few years here, um, both to look for reform to the constitution, reform to the digital media laws that restrict um, reporting and sharing of information under the freedom of expression that is widely accepted as a, a human right internationally, and also to the continued control of the monarchy here. And those protests have also been crushed. And many activists here in Thailand have also been arrested or have gone to ground to continue their activities in a more clandestine way. So we're already in a situation that is not operating as a democratic country at this time. And that has expressed its close ties and support for the Myanmar military. So in that prism, you can see there's not going to be a lot of leeway to enable media or other um, international NGOs, uh, aid organizations to have access, free and fair access to those that are displaced along the border. So that's the, the ground on which we're, we're seeing this conflict right now. Um, on the personal civilian level, um, I've recently come back from the border and I was really moved to see the tremendous support by Thai communities to those that have been displaced from Myanmar. These were spontaneously organized, community-based humanitarian efforts to donate food, water, sleeping mats, blankets, mosquito nets to those that had been displaced. Um, and it was very moving to see these Thai, um, these, there's sort of a, a civic, a civic organization that organizes the um, distribution of this relief that comes from individuals, just people. Would, and while I was at one area, as I was there, th throughout the entire time I was there, cars and motorcycles were, were rocking up and pickup trucks with just people coming to drop things off. Um, there's also a group of women in Mesot that have been waking up early morning hours um, at, you know, at pre-dawn hours to cook humongous vats of rice and curry and dishing it up into um, you know, packs that can be distributed as cooked food um, to the refugees that they can reach every day. So in that sense, it has been really, uh, really amazing to see the people-to-people -people support. Um, and I think the Thai communities that are doing that should really be recognized and, and applauded for that. So thanks so much for joining us. There's quite a few more questions I have, but I understand you are running off to your uh, next operation that you're doing there in the border. So I'm really glad that we were able to get at least this bit of time and wishing you to be safe 
in what you're doing. And thanks so much for joining us here for an interview on the podcast. Thank you, Joanne. I think that um, the platform of Insight Myanmar is really a vital, a vital portal for people to inform themselves. And um, I hope that people will be able to continue to listen to this really excellent podcast. And I hope, too, that people will be able to join the Burma Spring Benefit Film Festival. It's a wonderful offering of over 40 films from Myanmar and about Myanmar, including films created by Myanmar directors. Um, and we urge people to go online, watch some of the films. They include documentaries, feature films, animation, and any proceeds that will be donated um, at your heart's will will go directly for humanitarian assistance to community-based organizations in Myanmar. We heard drums. People were singing and chanting that the military was against the people, not with the people. I saw Zhou, a bandana on his head, leading the drum revolution, filling the air with determination and courage, and I followed them. One of the most tragic aspects of the current crisis in Myanmar is how isolated Burmese protesters feel, and in fact are. Thankfully, through our nonprofit organization Better Burma, we're able to ensure that all your donations successfully reach their intended target on the ground. So if you found yourself moved by today's discussion and want to do what you can to help, please consider giving to our donation fund, which is 100% directed towards supporting the democracy movement. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go to support a wide range of humanitarian missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person, IDP Camps, Food for Impoverished Communities, military defection campaigns, undercover journalists, monasteries and nunneries, education initiatives, the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies, COVID relief, and much more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution for a specific activity or project you would like to support perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian aid work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A.org and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either the Insight Myanmar or Better Burma websites for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. If you'd like to give in another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support.